Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Email from Sean to Roy at RoyGreenShow.com. There's no way... I'm getting the shot until they can give me the booster recommended by the manufacturer. A lot of people say I don't have to change my vehicle oil for 10,000 kilometers either, but I change my oil at the manufacturer's recommended time. I have no idea what the outcome is if the booster is taken four months after, even if the manufacturers don't recommend it. The only one who seems to be recommending it is Dr. Trudeau. I'll wait it out because I don't want to find out. I have to get them all over again, and there's no way on the planet... I'm taking AstraZeneca. Back with us on the program, and we always appreciate him coming on, is Paul Lucas. He's the former president and CEO of GlaxoSmithKline, the pharmaceutical firm in this country, international pharmaceutical firm. And uh, Mr. Lucas has uh, shared a lot of information with us about the uh, process, about about uh, how manufacturing of vaccines takes place, and how the gov- this government particularly has uh, placed blame where they really shouldn't be placing blame. Mr. Lucas, thank you very much for coming back on the show. The situation is becoming, I think, more messy and confusing for people who aren't sure whether they trust immunization in the first instance, like uh, the email I just read. So I'd like to, if we can start with this, would you tell us, please, what the process is from the very beginning? And maybe we go back to 2009 when uh, GSK was so heavily involved in H1N1 vaccine production. What's the process from the very beginning to the time your vaccine reaches a Canadian arm? Mm-hmm. That's a great question, Roy. It's good to be here again with you. Um, so the process is really a very extensive one, and it's hard to describe in just a few short minutes. But um, there are kind of five key areas. First of all, the research, where uh, product is, is researched and discovered, then development, then government approval, then manufacture, and then delivery into arms. I'll go into a little more detail on those. But what I can say is that there is extensive scrutiny that goes into every one of those steps, uh, scrutiny by the researchers, by committees, by government officials, health officials, and so on. And uh, there are significant controls around each of those steps. So I guess bottom line is, um, yes, there's a lot of noise and around our vaccine program. Uh, people have concerns, but Canadians can feel uh, 100% assured that no corners have been cut in the development of these, these vaccines. And, um, you know, that just can't happen because of the controls that are in place along, along the development line. So the government is in Condor Health Officials representing the federal government, maybe both, are in touch, were in touch with your company, perhaps with you directly, as this whole process unfolded in 2009. Yeah, absolutely. And um, maybe I can just walk you through some of the steps top line. Please. Uh, but, you know, a vaccine is, first of all, discovered, and it's discovered in the labs uh, of, of companies or universities. 
And during that time, it's, you know, when they discover something like a vaccine, say a COVID vaccine, they test it in, in the lab, they test it in the Petri dish, they test it in animals to make sure that there are no significant issues and that it might work. Uh, then it goes into the development process. So it goes into the phases of clinical development, which people have been hearing about. So it goes into phase one study, to, uh, and those are very small studies, a few hundred people under extremely controlled conditions. In fact, often they may be done in a hospital or a unit where the patients that are receiving the new drug are under constant surveillance. And that's really just to determine whether a product is safe and they're exploring various dose levels. So that's phase one. Phase two is a larger group of, of people taking the, the drug or the vaccine uh, in order to make sure it's safe, make sure it works, and make sure they get the dose right. And then they go into phase three trials, and, and Canadians have heard about phase three trials. That's where you put the vaccine into thirty to 40,000 people. Uh, often in different centers around the world in different countries and different demographics, different age groups, and so on. And that's where you determine whether the drug really works in a large group. And that's how, how the companies get to the claim that their vaccine is 95% effective, for example, because you're comparing the vaccine to a placebo, which doesn't have any effect. So you do the big, large uh, clinical trials, the phase three. Um, those are controlled by uh, ethics review boards in the centers where the studies uh, are done. So to make sure that they're done properly and that the drugs are safe. Um, and, and so that's, that's the big trials, the, the phase three. And those trials uh, can't get started until Health Canada or the FDA or other regulatory bodies actually approve them, approve the protocols by which they're going to be done. So, again, another step in the approval process. Then once the, the uh, results are achieved from the phase three trials and you know you've got a vaccine that works, then you submit it to the, regula the regulatory body, the government regulatory body. So in our case, it's Health Canada. Uh, you make a submission, they review all the data, they make sure that it's, uh, the data shows that it's safe and effective. And um, at the same time, you submit manufacturing data to make sure that uh, the, the manufacturing process is, is proper. And Health Canada would approve virtually every step of that manufacturing process. They, in fact, actually uh, inspect the factories in which these vaccines are made to, again, make sure that everything is, is correct. Um, so, so now you get into manufacturing. If you want me to stop there for a second, I can. But No, please, like please continue. Yeah, yeah please. Yeah. Sure. So, so once, once you have approval to, uh, to market your, your new vaccine, and you may start this process beforehand, you start manufacturing it. So you have to start scaling up that product in your factories. And um, so you take the, the ingredient, the COVID vaccine, you, you uh, in the case of uh, the Pfizer vaccine, the Moderna vaccine, you're actually producing it in big vats, big bioreactor uh, vats. It's like almost making beer. <laughs> but uh, So you produce the volumes and then you start putting it into vials and you label it and so on. And then, again, at every step of that process, 
uh, your quality control and your quality assurance is making sure that everything is according to uh, according to plan. So is the recipe right? Have you checked every step of the process to make sure you got the right ingredients? Has it been uh, contaminated in any way? So all those checks and balances are are implemented throughout the process and um, making sure that there are no issues. And and that's where issues actually can pop up. So people have heard about the J&J problem uh, that, that they had in the last week in one of their factories um, where the product wasn't the way it was supposed to be. Well, that was caught by the quality control process. And so Canadians, again, can be assured that, again, every step of the way, uh, the quality control makes sure that uh, what's in that vaccine is what's supposed to be in that vaccine and it's safe and effective. So let, let me ask you then uh, this question um, in, in conclusion. the When the manufacturer gives a date, as Pfizer did, three weeks is their preferred time or the, right. the recommended time between the first and the second dose. We're now in Canada, we're now looking at 16 weeks what does that say to you? Well, uh, as you can tell, I'm, I have a science background, and I believe in the science. And the science comes from the clinical trials. And when they did their Pfizer did their phase three trials, and the other companies did their phase three trials, they came up with what they felt was the proper dosing regimen uh, with the proper interval. And they came up with three and four weeks, Moderna and Pfizer. And that's what they submitted to the health authorities, and that's what was approved. Um, and you know, from my point of view, that's the way it should be administered. I think Canada has, has gotten itself into a position because of the lack of vaccines that were ordered and delivered that they had to do something to get vaccines into people as quickly as they could. So, you know, they made this decision to extend the interval, and there's no science to support that at this point, um, and many scientists have confirmed that. So it's unfortunate that that's where we are, um, because I think some Canadians are going to believe, well, I got the first dose, I must be protected, and I can do anything I want now. And that's very, very dangerous, particularly in the situation we're in right now with the variants and so on. Professor Jane Kirtley. Um, Professor Kirtley has been a guest on this program many times over the years. She's the Silha Professor of Media Ethics and the Law. She's also the director of the Silha Center for the Study of Media Ethics and the Law at the University of Minnesota. She's also a lawyer. Um, Jane, thank you very much for for taking the time. And I'd like to start this off personally with you, if I may. We spoke with you on the air the day or two days after the incident last May 25th when the rioting had taken place and uh, the emotion in the city was just palpable. What's it like now? And how do you, how are you feeling these almost a year later? Well, we've, we've had quite, um, quite a year here. I think it's fair to say if you were to go by our courthouse, it would probably remind you of the barricades you've seen in Washington, DC around the Capitol. Um, there is, anticipation that there may be civil unrest, although so far, although we've had protests, they have all been peaceful. And in fact, I saw this morning that there have been no arrests made uh, since the trial began in, in connection with this trial. So 
um, things are quiet, but very much engaged. There have been uh, many gatherings, not only on the street, but in places like churches and so forth, with speakers, some local, some coming in from other parts of the country, to express their concern um, and the emotion that they have about this proceeding. Um, I think that we have seen that the presiding judge, Peter Cahill, has taken what I would call a very professional approach to this trial. And um, I think there is at this point a lot of confidence that the trial will proceed as it has in this first week in a very orderly fashion and a deliberate fashion. Um, I don't know how many of your listeners have had occasion to watch any of the trial, but I think it's fair to say that although there has certainly been emotion from some of the witnesses that have testified, um, there is not the grandstanding or uh, the kind of, uh, you know, uh, extreme uh, behavior on the part of anybody that some people might have predicted would have happened. So in many ways, I think the way the trial is proceeding in this really extraordinary time where it's not only a high-profile case, but we're also dealing with pandemic restrictions, it's proceeding in, an, in a surprisingly ordinary way. And I hope it's giving the public a, a window into how criminal trials are supposed to operate in this country. And it is unusual, is it not, in the state of Minnesota for a trial to be televised? It is unprecedented in this state. Um, We have allowed cameras in our appeals courts for quite some time, but on the trial court level, if it's a criminal case, all parties to the case historically had to agree to uh, cameras being there. And up until now, that's never happened. And it didn't happen this time because the prosecution has opposed the presence of cameras. But again, the presiding judge, um, in part because of a petition made by a coalition of media companies, uh, came to the conclusion that because our U.S. Supreme Court has said that there's a First Amendment right of access to criminal proceedings, both for the public and for the press, that the only realistic way to provide that constitutionally guaranteed access was to allow cameras in the courtroom. So this is, um, I can't, I can't under, overstate how significant this is, because if this continues to go well, we may well see a shift in our state Supreme Court, which has been pretty, at best, agnostic, and in some cases hostile to the presence of cameras, mm-hmm. to see that they actually uh, can be there and, and not be a problem. I'm not trying to draw a comparison between the two, and it has been talked about, but the significance of the public interest in this trial is often said to be similar to that of the O.J. Simpson trial. And then the two judges, and this is what I'm getting at, the two judges are contrasted, uh, Judge Ito in the Simpson trial, and uh, I'm sorry, what's the name of the judge in the... Cahill. Judge Cahill in the trial in Minnesota. Um, Would you speak to that? Because I know that's of interest to you as well. It is because I've been doing this this kind of work in terms of trying to promote open government and access to courts for many, many years. Um, I remember the O.J. Simpson case in great detail. Um, I think most uh, objective observers anyway would say that to the extent there were problems with cameras in the courtroom in the O.J. Simpson trial... A lot of the fault for that lay at the hands of of the presiding judge, Ito, who could have used his inherent authority from the bench to restrain um, some of the uh, theatrics that were going on with the lawyers, but for whatever reason chose not to do that. Judge Cahill has been really clear from the very beginning that he would not put up with any nonsense from anybody in this trial. He's a highly respected judge here. 
Um, and I think, uh, you know, the message has been clear that, that this is need, needs to be done in an orderly fashion. The other big difference that I think sometimes is lost on people is that in California, back at the time of the O.J. Simpson trial, there were not the legal ethical restrictions on lawyers talking outside of the courtroom, basically trying the case in the media, as is often said. And so they were able to do a lot of courthouse stepped interviews that would not have been permitted in most other jurisdictions. We have rules like that here in Minnesota. So for the most part, we're hearing very little, if anything, from the lawyers other than in the courtroom itself. Jane, if I may ask you to just put on your lawyer's hat for a moment, your attorney's hat, or your, uh, when you, what has impressed you, what has stood out to you, particularly about what's happened in the courtroom, the arguments that have been made, just the decisions that have been taken, what, what, what's, what's registered with you? Well, again, I think what has registered with me is, is how orderly this case has been. Um, the whole jury selection process at the beginning of the proceedings um, was handled in a way that I thought was quite sensitive to all of the concerns. And I say all of the concerns because obviously judges want to protect jurors in appropriate ways. But on the other hand, the public has a right to know who is going to be serving on a jury. And, and we don't know their names and we weren't allowed to see their faces. But we did hear their voices and we did hear the questions that were being asked. And I think Judge Cahill was um, appropriately um, expansive in his willingness to allow the lawyers to have a robust jury voir dire, as we call it, um, to make sure that the people that were impaneled could provide uh, the defendant with a fair trial. So I think that is really important. I, I think beyond that, um, you know, there have been some interesting things happening in terms of evidentiary issues. Um, you mentioned um, Mr. Zimmerman's testimony, and there have been some questions about whether Judge Cahill has been allowing um, people that have not yet been basically certified as experts to provide what amounts to expert testimony. When you ask someone in the United States anyway for their opinion on something, that is basically asking them to render an expert opinion, and that means that they would have reviewed all of the relevant materials and that they would have basically been documented as being expert. Uh, obviously, this particular uh, you know, police lieutenant has long experience, but you know, if I were the defense counsel, um, I would have pressed an objection on that point simply because I would have said, I'm not satisfied that, that his credentials and the expert have been, have been satisfied. And that's something that could be an appealable issue later on down the line. That may sound too deep in the weeds, but I mean, that, that to me is really what's going on here. I think Judge Cahill has been, as I said, very sensitive to the witnesses and to the jurors. There was one juror who raised her hand earlier in the week and asked to be excused for a few minutes after some of the really gut-wrenching testimony. That's happened, and then the trial picks up and resumes again. So it's going like a textbook trial at this point, I would say. For people who have not been following the uh, the case uh, closely and are wondering what possible defense uh, Derek Chauvin could mount, what what is he saying? The big one right now is that his actions were not the direct cause of um, George Floyd's death. That uh, And there's already been evidence submitted that uh, Mr. Floyd consumed uh, controlled substances uh, as he was being uh, in the process of being arrested, being wrestled out of his car. Um, the issue of whether he was doing that to avoid uh, being caught with illegal drugs or, or what is, is obviously 
uh, not really in an issue at this point. It's simply that if he had drugs in his system sufficient to um, render him unconscious or even to kill him, could you say that what Chauvin did was actually the proximate cause of his death? I'm not a criminal lawyer, but the thing that strikes me about that is there's a, a concept in, in just ordinary civil tort law that says that you take your, your victim as you find him. And in this case, I, I don't really see how if he, in fact, if, if in fact a factor in his death was having these drugs in his system, that that would exonerate Chauvin from having um, engaged in, in improper behavior and not exercising the due care he would be required to do under the law. Jane, one of the, uh, one of the issues that, um, that there's been a lot of discussion about this, about how media are, in fact, covering this trial. What's your overall sense of the ethical positions or the just the overall reporting that's taking place? And then are there specifics that you've either felt are being handled extremely well or perhaps not so well? Well, I think we have to start with, again, what makes this trial so unusual, which is that it's being live-streamed. So if you have access to a computer, um, some of our cable channels have been carrying it, um, and even over the air, I know our ABC affiliate has uh, linked into a feed from ABC News, and you can watch the trial. It's on um, gavel to gavel. And in the case of the ABC coverage, uh, when they go into a recess for lunch or something like that, they just roll with, with other news coverage, not necessarily related to the trial. So I guess my point would be that unlike many um, criminal cases, high-profile criminal cases, the, the public really has the ability to watch this if they choose to on whatever device they want to choose um, whenever, whenever they want. So they aren't dependent upon the news media in the way that, that would be the case if we didn't have cameras in the courtroom. Um, I, I, I draw, as I think I always do, a distinction between what I would call traditionally the print media, and I'm thinking here of the major um, news outlets, uh, both from the United States and from other countries, um, and uh, on, the print, on the print side, and then what the electronic media are doing. Um, again, the, the news reporting I've been seeing from uh, both our local print media and our national news media for the most hand part has been exactly what you would expect, uh, recaps um, oftentimes you know, in, in the minute or even or hourly or something like that about what has transpired in the courtroom, and then various sidebars um, on uh, people involved in the case, either directly or per- peripherally, that provide explainers for the public. So in many respects, Again, it's not. It's extraordinary only because of the amount of detail. It's not so much exactly what they're doing. It's it's the kind of thing that you would see in many high profile cases. As far as television is concerned, I would say that I am I am cringing a bit because. For the cable and the, the continuous feed networks, I'm seeing a lot of the same things that happened during the O.J. Simpson case. They have their designated, quote-unquote, expert, who's typically either a, a former uh, prosecutor or defense counsel, depending upon which side they want to talk about, providing their Monday morning quarterbacking view of what has transpired in the courtroom. I hope they're watching it attentively. I know that in the case of the O.J. Simpson case, many of these expert commentators weren't actually watching what they were talking about. Um, it appears that they are, but of course I can't watch everything, so I can't be 100% sure. 
um, again, I think it's very useful if they can provide context, but one of the real problems in the O.J. Simpson trial was they were often basically talking about stuff about which they knew very little. They hadn't reviewed the evidence, so how could they possibly know whether the defense or the prosecution had done uh, an appropriate uh, thing in the courtroom? Um, I can't really speak for everybody, but I think for the most part, the relationship between the individual news organizations that are covering this case and the courthouse staff has been okay. We've had a few issues with where journalists can interview people. Um, the judge doesn't want people crowding in the hallways. There's a lot of concerns about security for this trial, of course. And so there have been this kind of tortured, how many angels dance on the head of a pen discussion about what's simply, you know, getting confirmatory information versus having a full um, interview, and, and uh, there have been some disputes with uh, the, the deputy sheriffs. The New York Times actually wrote about an experience they had with this earlier this week. But to many, in many ways, I think these are just kind of the growing pains of trying to set up the coverage on, under this, these really extraordinary circumstances. Because again, it's not just the high security that you would expect, but it's also the COVID restrictions, which means that hardly anyone can actually be in the courtroom. So most journalists are, are watching the trial through a, a feed that's, that's going into a press room. What, what are your students asking? What are, what's of uh, primary concern or interest to your students well, I, I would say that one of my students, who is not a student of mine this semester, but was last semester, who works for our uh, University of Minnesota student paper, the Minnesota Daily, contacted me early in the process to say, do you think I can get a press credential? Do you think they'll give one to, to the likes of me? And I said, absolutely, I think you should try. So she's been quite thrilled that the Minnesota Daily has a, a designated slot um, to cover the trial. And there's a lot of interest uh, with our students, um, obviously because this arose right here, but because there are so many complicated issues here about race and class and power. Um, and I think, uh, you know, students being students, uh, Many of them uh, take this in a very emotional way. The university has been providing them all kinds of support systems, uh, not just for the students, but for faculty and staff as well, which at this point to me strike me as being maybe not all that necessary, although obviously a lot of the testimony last week was, was quite emotionally wrenching, and if you're not accustomed to it, I'm, I'm sure it hits them hard. But I think um, my students, for the most part, I'd say are taking a wait-and-see attitude, but for the ones that have not had any kind of experience with the criminal justice system, and that's most of them, this has been uh, quite a window for them into how the process works, what the constitutional protections are, and, of course, what the rights of the media are to cover. So I think um, this is a great uh, teaching moment, as we say, um, and uh, I want to make the most use of that that I can. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Ontario seniors couple, they're both health care professionals, 
They may sue the province for medical battery. You may have heard of this story. Over delay of the second COVID vaccination for them to 16 weeks, and this is after their first jab, and uh, the date for their second jab, or first second jab initially, as I understand it, had been confirmed for 21 days after the uh, first one. Ian Cooper is a lawyer for the couple, uh, coopermedialaw.com. Ian, thank you very much for, for taking the time. Did I describe the situation person uh, properly? Uh, yeah, mostly, right? So there are some nuances, and, and I'm not going to get into uh, detailed uh, rabbit hole that would require uh, some, well, a little bit of legal Latin and and oh, a fair bit of case law, but it basically, in very simple terms, the the issue for these two seniors and I'm by the day uh, hearing from other similarly situated seniors is that they signed up uh, to receive the Pfizer vaccine, and I'm glad you got yours. Um, it's it's you know it's. Uh, we are making progress in, in vaccinating people here in Ontario, but it's it's coming slowly. It's very slow. And and this group of people uh, who are, you know, in the 80-plus group uh, went and said, okay, it's our turn, and got their first shot. And when they showed up at the vaccination site, uh, they received a consent form. And the consent form said, I consent to receive the shot. I have read the province of Ontario's vaccine information sheet. The vaccine information vaccine information sheet included in three different places uh, statements about when boosters would be delivered and the importance of coming back to your booster appointment. 21 days for the Pfizer shot, 28 days for the Moderna shot. And these folks, when they were at the site, and this is something that I've heard from a lot of other people subsequently said look we're hearing about you know, delivery delays and all these other concerns do we have a firm appointment and they were told absolutely you've got a firm appointment uh come back in three weeks and you'll get your second shot so great they took the shot in reliance on what they were told both in writing and orally and then the province opened its vaccine portal on March 15th, and they were informed that their appointment had been canceled. And most disturbingly, uh, this is a mixed bag. Some people were rescheduled, but in the case of my clients, they were simply told, yeah, your appointment's canceled. No even mention of when their booster is. So we've got a lot of people who said, look, if I was given the the statement that you're going to get partial protection and we're going first doses fast. What a lot of these people would have done is said, we're stuck in our houses anyway. We aren't going to, on the basis of one shot, feel comfortable to go back to living anything close to a normal life. We'll wait till the U.S. is done vaccinating with teenagers. Um, I'm, you know, one of my good friends who lives in Connecticut, uh, her 16-year-old daughter was vaccinated yesterday. Right. So we'll wait till the U.S. has done it its campaign, which should be in the summer, and then we'll be you know, more significantly stocked in vaccines, and we can get our shots in the right time frame. And I'm hearing this from lots of people. I know the first time my clients and I spoke about this, that was what was so frustrating is they wouldn't have taken that first shot. And everybody else, lots of other people are coming forward and saying they're in the same boat. So, so, Ian, is there a possibility here of this becoming a class action? 
Well, it, it, there are lots of different possibilities. So my, my foremost hope is, is that the government does the right thing here and simply says we have a group of people who we told one thing, they relied on it in, in complete good faith, and we pulled the rug out from under them when we changed the rules. Okay, you, so, haven't, you haven't launched legal action yet. No, we haven't filed yet. We've given the government some time to respond because the reality is that we are on a ticking clock. But very quickly, my clients are going to have to make a decision in, in the coming days, likely this week, of do they want to proceed individually or do they want to proceed as a class or as a group proceeding with all of the other people who have reached out to me since we went public with this last week. Okay, so I see claiming uh, breach of contract, detrimental reliance, and medical battery. I get the first two. How does the medical battery fit into it? Yeah, so so medical battery is something that, uh, I mean, it's specific to the medical context, but it, 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 you have to consent under the Healthcare Consent Act in Ontario to receive a treatment. And when you give your consent, there are rules about when a consent can be nullified after the fact. So if, for example, uh, I'll give you a simple example, I, you're going in for a, a, one procedure and the doctor performs a different procedure on you. You've consented to the procedure you thought you were getting. Right. You didn't consent to the one that was actually performed. That is, a, yeah, that would be an example of medical battery. Okay, so now when, how do you move forward? What's the process from today on forward? When, when would you potentially file? So we're, we're looking, we're, we're going to have to sit down after the long weekend. I mean, the reality is this, this holiday weekend has slowed us down a bit. Uh, but we would be looking to be filing in the next week or so. And really it depends, as I said, on whether we proceed individually or whether we see, uh, my clients see a benefit in proceeding with, with the others. And in terms of how we would file, uh, I mean, I don't, again, want to get into our litigation strategy in this discussion, but obviously our goal would be seeking relief in the very near term. Okay. Let's get to the carbon tax. And my good friend, Dan McTague, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, 18 years a Liberal member of Parliament, joins us on this program and it stands, well, it's your issue. Uh, carbon tax is your issue, my friend. How are you? I'm fine. I wish it weren't my issue. And it's carbon taxes because there's not just the uh, one that we heard about, the federal Liberals decided to increase and broke a campaign promise, uh, but also the clean fuel standard. Uh, this is going to be a very costly future, and uh, you're going to start to see it showing up uh, in bills, uh, oh, well, as of now. Well, let's talk about this. Let's just get to the gas pump. This morning, my car was running on fumes. You know, a little message appears on your screen that says, do you want us to tell you where the closest gas station is, dummy? <laughs> right? <laughs> so that that screen message was there. I went to fill up, Dan, and it was a buck 62. Wow. A buck 62. Uh, per yeah. liter. So that's over $6 a gallon. It is. And it's uh, obviously supreme, but even for the regular stuff, it's, uh, you know, this morning, $1.26.9. Now imagine if uh, with HST in a province like Ontario or GST in other provinces of Manitoba, Saskatchewan, uh, and Alberta, uh, as well as British Columbia, you know, if you could see those prices drop 10 cents a liter, that's exactly what would happen if we didn't have this 
what I call a weather tax. Uh, of course, I'm tongue in cheek, but it's not going to change anything except to, uh, you know, pretty much provide the federal government with uh, with much needed revenues, because we, as we know, it's definitely not rebated. That's been proven by Black Box Reporter and many others who've shown that the federal government kept $200 million in so-called rebate. And we know that the GST, HST is not rebated. And of course, when I'm talking about, a, uh, you know, a, a truck drivers having now to pay a, an additional 12 and a half cents a liter, where does that wind up? Well, it winds up being part of your grocery bill. It hurts farmers. And of course, these things are things that consumers are going to have to start to get used to because they've cheerfully gone along with this in many of the urban centers across Canada. Do you have an idea of just how much this uh, carbon tax and the clean fuel tax, all the taxes combined, all the effects that it has, or they have, those taxes have, how much is it going to cost the average family over a year? Do you know? Well, by the by, the end of 2030, when uh, April 1st, uh, April Fool's Day 2030, when, uh, and assuming Mr. Trudeau doesn't, or any of his successors decide to add on to this carbon tax, between the clean fuel standard and uh, the uh, actual uh, carbon tax of $170, uh, I'm looking at an additional, uh, to heat your home, uh, an additional uh, $1,100 a year. Uh, I'm looking at gasoline, about $700 more a year. And that doesn't include the secondary costs, as I mentioned earlier. So probably about three to $4,000 more a year uh, that you'll need in disposable income just to pay for that. And of course, most of that will not be rebated. Now, we know that the rebate uh, will now require the federal government to dig deep into its pockets at the same time, $24 billion. Imagine how many hospitals and social programs and pensions won't be able to be paid because we now have to uh, rebate people uh, so the government can uh, claim that uh, this is a very efficient tax, which of course it isn't. Well, governments usually then find another way to add taxes to what uh, was already there. If they're running short, they'll find another way to tax. Sure. And of course, uh, you know, take your province. Uh, you're, you're looking at a 13 cent uh, tax in, in Alberta, plus a, uh, a federal tax, to excise tax of 10 cents, Ontario 14.7, the Maritimes, and then a GST and HST on top of that. Roy, I guess uh, when we get around to April 19th, we'll see if the federal Liberals don't increase the HST. I believe they have no choice given the amount, amount of debt this country has incurred. I just don't see any uh, bright clouds uh, going forward, certainly not for consumers and people trying to make and struggling, trying to make ends meet at a very difficult time historically. Here's an email from Kelly in Alberta. Here in Alberta, we get how this carbon tax is nothing more than a tax grab. I hope Dan is preaching to the east. They're the ones that can end this by voting out our prime minister. She added a word there. Well, she's right. Um, it's Eastern Canadian in large cities that uh, think nothing of this and think, oh, rebate, rebate, rebate. Look, you're going to get fleeced. And let, I can't use a better term. You're going to be fleeced by several hundred dollars this year alone. I say that simply because the cost, the inflationary effect uh, of this carbon tax. Uh, yeah, you're going to get a little bit back, you know, get three, four hundred bucks here. But it certainly won't account for colder weather. It will account for larger families and your need to use more fuel. If you need to use more fuel to heat your home in a colder situation, sorry, but the Liberal government template for this carbon tax doesn't work. And so while all of the Eastern elites, and I call them that, the Laurentian elites, uh, we refer to them as the folks who like to give advice to others and tax the snot out of them, while at the same time receiving well, you know, significant subsidies and wonderful back uh, uh, federal government uh, support for their uh, ever never-ending data and research that always has to be confirming the idea that climate change and, and carbon taxes are, are inevitable and necessary. It really leaves people at variance. And so it's really up to the 905ers and the 416ers, you know, riding side represented 
to finally wake up, smell the coffee and realize uh, we're not going to change anything in the world while China, India and the rest of the world continues to increase their carbon emissions if, in fact, that's the concern that they have. Well, your former caucus colleague, now prime minister, says it's a tax on pollution. <laughs> well, maybe you should stop exhaling. I want to drag you I mean, back. I just want to drag you back in, back into the political arena. I wish you hadn't. But I, <laughs> look, I know that guy, and I, I, I don't want to get into what I've already said with you many times in the past. You know. Uh, uh, well, this, go ahead. Yeah, well, look, I mean, he's not capable of under of discharging the job, and we've had this discussion before. He's obviously a poltroon, being led around the nose, uh, nice hair, nice socks, nice selfies. But the, at the end of all of this. You know, you want somebody of substance who recognizes the real crisis in this country is a health one, and it's now going to be an economic one. Anybody who wants to invent some kind of environmental shenanigans should look at Canada's clean record in terms of real environmental and real pollution, because we've got our act together when it comes to clean air, clean water. His own government decides to dump sewage into, I don't know, into uh, the St. Lawrence River. I'll put that aside for a moment and, and remind everyone here that if we're going to be fixated on only one single issue, uh, then we have a very serious problem in this country in terms not just of our democracy, but of our options in terms of how to get ourselves out of this mess that we find ourselves in. And this guy is not the man for the job. I don't know who is. We could have that big debate. But as long as people believe that uh, it's all about climate worshipping, yes, climate changes and has been changing for some time. But to suggest that it has something to do with humans and that a tax can somehow manage to you know, turn the thermostat up and down when it comes to controlling climate is absolutely absurd and ridiculous. And anybody who thinks that's a smart policy, including the six trendy members of our Supreme Court of Canada, who obviously are, pol- are politicians now, they're no longer jurists, ought to really give their head a shake because the evidence is not there. And it's certainly very controversial. And the debate has yet to be finished, much less finalized. I spoke last weekend uh, with Dr. Bjorn Lomborg from the Copenhagen Consensus yes. Centre, right? Uh, Time magazine named him among the world's 100 most influential people. And we were talking about the cost to individuals, what happens to people when their energy prices, their energy costs raise beyond their capability to pay. And there was a British story, Dan, that I talked about on the air, and I had the, uh, the evidence, and I still have it at home in my files, where British seniors, many of them who have low income or fixed income, what they do in the wintertime is they ride the buses all day long because they can't afford to heat their homes. So they go into the only warm environment they can afford, and that's public transit. Terrible. I don't know if we're going in that direction, but that was the British example. But Britain said no to a carbon tax. Let's understand that. Let's get this really right. Britain said no to a carbon tax because they know the full effect of what happens in a country that is blessed as ours. It isn't as obviously a country that's far colder than any other country in the face of this planet. For us to impose this, I mean, this, uh, not just re- reckless, uh, it is uh, in, in a form of economic vandalism, the likes of which I have never seen a government engage in. And so sooner or later, the public will wake up, especially when kids keep telling their parents, as advocated by our cur- school curriculum, that the world is coming to an end in 10 years. If we don't understand the economics of what is about to take place, then we're going to find ourselves in a situation where many kids are not going to have a home to go back to, especially if interest rates start to go up. And of course, uh, the economic economic situation continues to deteriorate. Uh, It's only a matter of time, Roy, before all the public, I think those who think wonderfully and think this is without consequence are going to sooner or later realize uh, that we have a government in Ottawa that's not got their back, has its own agenda, and that agenda is completely at variance with the Canadian way. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, 
Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.